Zanius, bring the rest of the guard. Royal Guard, to the arena. March. No guard, Your Majesty. In all this crowd, Greeks all over the place. Gladius. Gladius. People are guarding today, Gladius. Let these Greeks see for themselves how I can walk through my people. Then let them call me Titus. Bring the main guard in after my entry only. Titus, make sure the wine flow is steady all day. I want them to like me. What you told? I go in alone. Follow with the main guard. Go on. Go on. Father, it's best to go with you. You want the world to say you're my successor? Is that what she wants? Oh, don't look so hurt all the time, Alexander. Be a man. You count yourself lucky you were here at all today. After your public display. By Heracles, by Zeus, by all the gods, obey me this once! Have courage, Father. And go on your way rejoicing that at each step you may recall your valor. Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. scrape this episode in and get it in just before midnight central standard time the usual announcement before we begin if you are listening to this podcast on youtube instead of regular podcatchers please hit the subscribe buttons below the video also please make sure to hit the bell icon to the right and choose all notifications that way you will automatically be notified as new episodes load also, this podcast is now available on Amazon Music. If the coins I mention in today's cover art do not show up in your podcatcher, you can view all the coin images at very on the website on veryoldmoney.com. We have two coins in the cover art today, and they're from our old friends, Classical Numismatic Group LLC, who you can visit at www.cngcoins.com. Last time, we left Philip on the verge of his great Asian campaign. Atlas and an advance guard had moved into Asia. Philip had organized a big party at Aigai to celebrate the marriage of his daughter Cleopatra with her uncle Alexander. The, the whole family was back together, after which Philip and Alexander, now this is his son Alexander, not his brother-in-law slash son-in-law Alexander of Epirus, would join the army in Asia. Except, as I have stated multiple times, Philip is never getting to Asia. So what happened? First, the wedding feast. It was lavish and huge, with a guest list from all over Greece. Greek cities, including Athens, contributed golden wreaths to Philip, the hegemon of Greece. Crowds flocked to the former Macedonian capital for entertainment. The banquet featured the popular Athenian actor, Neoptolemus, who had trained Demosthenes himself. And the late night party had no sarpus like Atlas to spoil the fun with drunken toasts. 
and after this the next day was scheduled for games. Crowds packed the theater where statues of the 12 Olympian gods were carried into the theater along with a 13th statue of Philip himself. Was Philip claiming divinity? Now, as the clip at the beginning of the episode shows, when Philip shows up, he decided to prove he was not a tyrant by having the royal pages stand back and having his friends go up into the theater ahead of him. What need did Philip, hegemon of Greece, have for bodyguards when surrounded by friends? Philip entered a narrow passageway to get into the theater, accompanied by his son Alexander and his brother-in-law slash son-in-law Alexander of Epirus. But yet, among the revelry, one of the royal pages was sulking. Pausanias of Orestes was a royal page and a former lover of Philip. But then, according to Diodorus Siculus, Philip became enamored with another man, also called Pausanias. Philip obviously was not a man given to romantic fidelity, whether the partner was male or female. Jealousy ate at the Orestine Pausanias, who insulted his rival by accusing him of being a hermaphrodite who accepted homosexual advances unworthy of a man. Stung by the accusations, the other Pausanias sought out death by taking blows aimed at Philip in a battle against the Illyrians. But the deceased Pausanias had been friends with our old friend Atlas, who, according to Diodorus, sought revenge in a spectacular and grisly way. Inviting the other Pausanias to dinner, he got him drunk, evidently had him gang-raped by his guests, and then the stable boys. Naturally, on recovering, Pausanias of Orestes wanted justice and revenge. Diodorus states, that Philip shared his anger at the barbarity of the act, but did not want to punish Atlas at the time because of their relationship and because Atlas's services were needed urgently. What is Diodorus talking about here? Atlas, of course, was the uncle of the new queen, and he had been sent to command the advance guard in Asia. Now, in Oliver Stone's Alexander, the scene of this assault is depicted during Philip's drunken wedding feast which we covered in the last episode and in this episode philip is even taking part in the assault which none of the sources mention and basically runs contrary to all the sources so what philip tried to do was mollify pausanias by giving him presents and promoting to promoting him to his personal bodyguard now now this is not the core bodyguard of seven bodyguards next to the king but this is like the next tier of bodyguard but having someone pissed off with you in a position next to you with sharp pointy objects sounds truly daft. What happened next, according to Diodorus's account, appears to be a premeditated conspiracy. Pausanias decided to act at the festival, had horses posted at the gates of the city to make his escape. And then Philip, in his hubris, gave him the opportunity by having his guard at a distance and entering this passageway to get into the theater alone by himself. Pausanias, hiding a short Celtic dagger under his, cloak, under his cloak, saw his opportunity and struck. 
He stuck the dagger into Philip's ribs. Philip died at once. In the finest tradition of the Argyard Royal House, he died with his shoes on, or his sandals on. He was 46 years old. He had been king of Macedon for 23 years. Shock filled the theater as the assassin ran for it. In the chaos, some of the bodyguards rushed to the king. Others chased the assassin. Among these were Leonatus of Lincestus, a possible relative of Philip's mother, Perdiccas of Orestes, who possibly had Argyad royal descent, and Natalus, son of Andromenes from Timphaea. Now, all three of these are being noted because they're prominent characters. We're going to meet them prominently again when the wars of the successors start. Pausanias had the lead. After all, he had stabbed Philip and then made a run for it. But before he got to his horse, he tripped on a vine. And the pursuers caught up with him and he was summarily killed by Perdiccas and the Rex with their javelins. The king was dead. Pausanias killed the king. But did he act alone? Before we examine this question, let us detour as usual to take a look at the coins displayed today. We close out the reign of Philip with two gold coins, but fractional ones. The first is a hemistator, that is a half stator of 14 millimeters and 4.21 grams. It is in the name of Philip II, but could be a transitional type issued soon after the end of his reign by Alexander. The obverse has the head of Heracles, and Heracles is as usual wearing his lion skin, and the reverse has Philippoi of Philip in Greek, with the forepart of a lion facing right and a crescent below. This crescent is likely the mint mark in this coin is attributed to Amphipolis. Now, with all the lion imagery we see on coins and the mythology of Hercules killing the Nemean lion, which now serves as his headdress, it's important to note that lions had a much wider geographic spread than they do today. The natural habitat extended across Africa, Asia, into Europe. There were still lions in the Balkans five centuries later, but eventually they were hunted into extinction. The second coin is also gold, but it's a quarter stator. It's slightly smaller in size, 11 millimeters, but half the weight, it's 2.11 grams. And again, you have the head of Heracles, right, wearing the lion skin on the obverse, Philippoi in the reverse. But this is accompanied by a club and bow below the letters and a thunderbolt above. This coin has been attributed to the mint at Pella. You must have noticed that the son of Zeus keeps appearing on Macedonian coins. This is because the Argiads considered themselves Heraclids, that is descended from Heracles, and they were not the only Greek royal house to claim this. Notably, both royal houses of the Spartan Diarchy, who were still ruling in Sparta, and a previous royal house of Corinth also claimed this lineage. Almost all the gold coins displayed in the cover art so far are in fairly pristine condition, though the Phillips that were displayed in the last episode do often show up in worn 
more than these other coins. As I noted in the last episode, these coins were not used for transactions on a daily basis as frequently. So the wear on the Phillips is also probably a factor of just how long they remained in circulation given how popular they were. So that is the coins for today. Those for now are the last coins we will see directly issued in the reign of Philip, though there are going to be a bunch of posthumous issues that are probably going to show up. If from time to time I find coins of Philip I didn't address, I may show them up in a supplemental episode. So back to the story and the tagline of this episode, Who Killed the King? The first option, of course, is that Pausanias acted alone from a sense of personal grievance against the king who had protected his rapist. This wouldn't be the only time in history a monarch was killed from an act of private vengeance. But on the other hand, such a publicly embittered bodyguard was a useful tool for people to use. Now, one thing that I noted last episode was chronology can become a big problem in the story of Philip. This Illyrian campaign where this other Pausanias got himself killed was in 343 BC, which is seven years before the assassination. At that time, Atlas was a relative nobody. And his rise to such prominence basically happened because his niece caught the eye of the king a couple of years before the assassination. Did Atlas wait seven years for his grisly rape revenge? Or if the rape happened then, which does not square with Diodorus's chronology, did Pausanias stew for seven years before taking it out of the king? Or is the story of the two Pausanias unrelated to the assault? Did, did something else happen? Was something else lost in the weeds and the mists of time? Who knows? Now, there were a number of people who potentially wanted Philip dead. One of the first obvious choices is his embittered wife or ex-wife, Olympias, who has now been displaced by a younger Macedonian queen, and she faces the prospect of a son possibly losing his right to the succession if said queen produces an heir. Now, the ancient historian Justin pins the blame on her by stating that she provided the getaway horses for Pausanias, crowned his dead body, and then provided him with a lavish tomb. But starting almost immediately with his accession, Alexander hunted down people accused of being in cahoots to kill his father. Now, while he was very close to his mother, would he really look the other way while she went ahead and so publicly celebrated the assassination of Philip? It doesn't seem to make sense. Plutarch's description of the assassination is as follows. And so when Pausanias, who had been outrageously dealt with at the hands of Attalus and Cleopatra, and who could get no justice at Philip's hands, slew Philip, most of the blame devolved on Olympias, on the ground that she had added her exhortations to the young man's anger and incited him to the deed. But a certain amount of accusation attached itself to Alexander also. For it is said when Pausanias, after the outrage he had suffered, met Alexander and bewailed his fate, Alexander recited to him the iambic verse of the media, the giver of the bride, the bridegroom, and the bride. This verse in Plutarch's is intended to mean that Alexander is suggesting that 
it is necessary for Atlas, Philip, and Cleopatra Eurydice to be killed. Except as we discuss in the next episode, Alexander does not appear to have had any particular hostility towards Cleopatra. His ire was primarily, primarily based at Atlas, and it does not seem to have taken place until the ill-advised and possibly drunken toast at the banquet. Now, I've said about many times Alexander feared being displaced by a child of the new marriage, but he's also a grown man. Now, there's a question about his popularity with his foreign mother and his recent rift with his father, but he still had a base of support among the young nobility. Did he really need to fear a babe whose mother's family had only come to prominence so recently? But then again, people have noted the speed with which Pausanias was eliminated rather than captured for questioning, and the fact that some of Alexander's friends were the ones who did the chase, reeks of a cover-up. It could be a cover-up. It could be them just killing him in the heat of the moment. Who knows? The next fairly obvious candidate is the great king of Persia. Facing an invasion, he may have decided it was easier to pay someone to cut off the head of the Macedonian snake in the hope that the Macedonian state would collapse under the usual succession tumult. Or that the new king, being likely to be very young and fairly untested, would be unequal to the task at hand. And as we'll discuss, in upcoming episodes, and even a little today, the transition of power was not smooth. Now, Alexander himself would blame the Persians for conspiring to kill his father, including in letters to the great king. Was he deflecting blame away from his mother, using it to unite the Greeks, or was this based in evidence? Plutarch does note that in the aftermath of the assassination, Persian gold flowed freely, and causing the troubles that delayed Alexander's descent into Asia. And finally, there were a number of Greek city-states only too happy to see the Macedonian yoke slip. If the great king could be paymaster, so could they. And the Greek city-states would be unruly in the aftermath of the assassination. But ultimately, we are left with a slightly unsatisfactory, I don't know, the Macedonian court was rife with factionalism, Pausanias himself does not seem to have intended a suicide action, even if, one of, as one of the Chronicles notes, one of the motivations was his philosophy teacher telling him that killing someone was a way to achieve fame, which, as it turns out, is true. The assass- being the assassin of Philip is the primary reason we know his name today. The sources agree that an escape was planned, and it is very possible that others were happy to fund the assassination, be it Olympias or the great king. Alexander himself at least publicly believed there was a conspiracy, and we will discuss in the next episode he would enact savage vengeance on the alleged assassins. But before he could enact vengeance, he first had to become king. Now, the Oliver Stone movie suggests that he was proclaimed king on the spot, but there was, it was not such a sure thing. Macedonian successions were messy, and while Alexander had his friends in recent exile and his quarrel with his father had cost him popularity, 
And hey, since I'm running out of chances to throw in his name, I will mention good old Amantis IV sitting in the wings. Why not? But to help resolve this mess, stepped in the veteran and 64-year-old general Antipater. Now, Antipater had been trusted by Philip enough to be proclaimed regent in 342 when Philip was off on a three-year campaign in Thrace. He also appears to have been friendly with Alexander and his mother, and the latter is ironic given what's going to happen in the coming two decades. Antipater himself presented Alexander to the army in an assembly, and the army then proclaimed him king. Diodorus notes that Alexander here showed tact and diplomacy, and he won his support. And this is what he says. He, that is Alexander, established his authority far more firmly than any did in fact support, suppose possible. For he was quite young, and for this reason not uniformly respected. But first, he promptly won over the Macedonians to his support by tactful statements. He declared that the king was changed only in name and that the state would be run on principles no less effective than those of his father's administration. Then he addressed himself to the embassies which were present and in affable fashion bade the Greeks maintain toward him the loyalty which they had always shown his father. Ha! Fat chance of that. The Greeks, of course, are not going to show him such loyalty. But, for now, we will wrap this episode up with Macedon having a new king. The king was dead. Long live the king. With a new king, we now say goodbye to Philip and we will move on to the next part of the season, the reign of Alexander. But wait, there is more. We last left the Persians in episode 2.5, that is the sixth episode overall, with the death of Cyrus the Great and the accession of Cambyses II. I initially meant to get back to the Persians at a later date and as I moved on to Macedon, I have noticed I keep referring to events in Greek history in the past that I have not addressed and left in a linear storyline. And I have no idea when I will actually get back to them. And now this is triggering both my obsessive-compulsive and attention deficit disorders. 
So this is what I am going to do. And this self pat on the shoulder is why my decision to group these episodes by season seems prescient. As I have discussed previously, there are two numbers for episodes. This episode is episode 3.9 with 15 in the brackets. That is, this is the ninth episode of season 3, but the 15th episode overall. So, we're going to be jumping around a bit in the next episode, 16. We're going to make a short trip to Act to Persia in what will be episode 4.1. It'll be called Kings of King of Kings. And at this point, I plan to cover 150 years of Achaemenid history in about six episodes, and six episodes, and this is aided in a great deal by the paucity of sources and a personal disinclination to get stuck in get stuck in the minutia on the subject. But I'm not going to leave Alexander marooned with his new diadem for too long. Starting about episode 4.3, as yet untitled, I plan to resume season 3. So our story on the wars of the successors will resume shortly in episode 3.10, The Great Purge. And what I plan to do is have parallel seasons running on various fronts going forward and will likely release two episodes at a time going forward. So the goal is to get season 4 to the accession of the currently ruling great king who will face Alexander by the time Alexander personally crosses into Asia. After that, season 3 will continue on through the end of the story of the successors. After the current story arc of the Great King is completed, we will explore the coinage of the Persian satraps in the remaining in the remainder of season 4. And these are likely to be shorter episodes focusing more on the coins. There won't be as much detail about the satraps. Again, you don't have a whole lot of detail to talk about some of these rulers. So these will be fairly short and I think fairly easy to produce episodes. And it will also give me time to talk about people like Mausolus of Caria, who was mentioned in the last episode. But wait, there's even more. Also, possibly around episode 4.3, you will get a third short season. Again, I'm guessing it'll be four to six episodes. It'll be season five, so starting with season 5.1, that will cover the Persian Wars. That is the Persian invasion of Greece and the following aftermath of the battles of Sal Salamis and Plataea and Mycale. This has been alluded to multiple times. And again, part of the problem I have is I'm going on so many different fronts if I keep going linear thing, I will never get to some of these episodes. And, you know, I don't want to be stuck in ancient Greece all along because after this is over, I do want to move on to ancient India. I eventually want to get to Rome. And since there are multiple podcasts that deal with these issues, I don't intend to get super stuck in the details of some of these episodes. But we will have enough to discuss these issues. So... Because the Persian Wars have been alluded to multiple times, I think that's a good time to get to it. And this is also a podcast that deals with numismatics. And it's sort of weird that I've been talking about Greece and Greek coins and I've never really got to the Owl of Athens, one of the seminal coins of the ancient world. And pretty soon you will see also why I want to get to the coin 
Owl of Athens and introduce it before the Persian series gets too far deep as well. So I hope this is not too complicated. Basically, look at the number in brackets. That is the sequence the episode was released in. And of course, you can compare it to the release date. The 3.1, 4.1, 5.1, etc. will tell you what season the episode is in. So hopefully this will work. And hopefully this won't be too confusing. And hopefully I'm actually looking forward to this. And then also in March, well, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. So you'll have to wait for that announcement. So getting back to square one, we will leave Alexander a chance to enjoy his diadem for a bit. And we will see you soon in the next episode, 4.1, King of Kings. With that, I would like to wish all of you a very happy new year. I wish you and your families a very happy and prosperous 2021. And I will see you shortly. I promise, promise, promise. This is not going to be another five, six month gap. So I will see you soon. Stay safe, everyone. And happy new year. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a five-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher from where you access this podcast. Good reviews are essential in getting the word out. Thank you for your support.